Hello and welcome to our September Publications Podcast. I'm Ed Vital from the University of Leeds and I'm Chair of the Lupus Forum. And this month I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Dr Anthony Saras, who's an NIHR Academic Clinical Lecturer in Rheumatology at the Kennedy Institute, which is in the University of Oxford. Um, welcome to the Lupus Forum, Anthony. Hi Ed, and thank you very much, you personally and the Lupus Forum for the invitation. And to discuss today, those three exciting research papers for this month's Lupus Forum podcast. Yeah, and one thing you've published on quite a bit is the innate immunity of lupus, which is kind of the theme of this, this first paper, isn't it? This is one we don't, as I say, we, we don't often co cover animal studies, but we do when we think they're quite relevant to what's going on in human lupus and with something you know, with a, with, a, with a message for clinical trials or for clinical practice. So do you want to talk us through this this first one? Yes, of course. And uh, actually, this is I think this is a great paper to discuss and try to combine our understanding about the immunology of the disease and how we can potentially use new therapeutic approaches to treat refractory lupus. Mm -hmm. So um, the first uh, paper uh, is titled Preclinical Evidence for the Glucocorticoid Sparing Potential of a Dual Toroic Receptor 7 and 8 Inhibitor in Autoimmune Diseases, which was published by Deshmukh et al. Uh, earlier this year. So actually, um, I think it would be quite useful for our audience to give a little bit of a background what the Toroic Receptors are. So if you remember from your medical school, so um, the cells have these... Um, pattern recognition uh, uh, receptors, which can be either extracellular or intracellular. And the most predominant intracellular receptor are TLR7, 8, and 9. And activation of them with, uh, for example, with uh, nucleic acid uh, binding uh, can lead to uh, activation of NF-kappa-B pathway and the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines by a lot of different immune cells. So, and why this is important, it's uh, obviously, um, if you if you can recall last year, there was a very big paper published in Nature that actually was the first study to show that mutations in the gene and the X chromosome recoding uh, uh, TLR7 can lead to a lupus-like disease. And um, and obviously there was there was a, a girl who was uh, homozygous for those mutations on the TLR7 gene, and she presented with lupus-like disease. So actually, it looks like that there is a strong association with um, genetic variants on the uh, those toll-like receptors and susceptibility to developing autoimmune disease. Yeah. So this is a classic case that what the patient had that inspired that Nature paper. Okay, that was very, very rare, but it tells you something about the disease in the exactly. broad population, yeah. that, that, that that molecule alone could give you lupus if it's mutated enough. Exactly, exactly. So the, the authors here uh, posed, I think, a very important question. Can we combine the glucocorticoid therapy with um, those dual toll-like receptor inhibitions, 7 and 8, just to, to, to remind the audience, TLR, in, in, in human immune cells, TLR7 is mainly um, expressed by plasmacytodendritic cells and B cells, while TLR7 and 8 um, are, are expressed mainly in myeloid cells, for example, the monocytes. 
So, uh, and here, for what, what the authors did first was they isolated peripheral mononuclear cells um, from, from healthy donors. And um, what they did, they tried to expose them to both glucocorticoids and the toll-like receptor inhibition and check if there is a difference in the pattern of inflammatory cytokines they produce. And those in vitro experiments, what they showed that actually it was only the monocyte group that managed to show a suppressive inflammatory cytokine profile with a combination of the uh, glucocorticoid and the TLR7 and 8 inhibition. However, when they tried to transfer the work to a MRL uh, lupus uh, mouse model, they showed that uh, the mice that were treated with a combination of treatment um, uh, showed less proteinuria and uh, prolonged survival compared to the mice that were treated only with TLR7 or 8 inhibition or just glucocorticoids. And I think um, th this is a, a very important comment to make. And obviously this is quite experimental and I, I don't think we were at the stage to draw robust conclusions for transferring uh, those treatment options to real patients with systemic lupus erythematosus. But if we can uh, give another example of uh, from rheumatic disease, which is ANCA-associated vasculitis, now we, uh, it has been approved a new treatment with Avacopan, which targets uh, the receptor of complement 5A. And actually, the big clinical trials have shown that combining uh, the Avacopan with the glucocorticoids, uh, you, you can use it as a steroid sparing agent, so you can reduce much faster the glucocorticoid burden to the patients. So actually, I think we should be a little bit more open-minded and think about how we manage that it is not just by reducing the disease activity, but how we can reduce the burden of glucocorticoids and drug toxicity. What, yeah. What's your opinion? I, I agree, yeah. And that's especially the case, isn't it? With Because um, we're getting therapies that may have faster-acting effects, which is the main role. You know, the steroids are there for the fast-acting disease activity, aren't they? Exactly. Um, if you have drugs that potentially, and these are the sort, I don't know yet, but these are the sort of drugs where you might think they have quite a rapid speed of onset of their, of their efficacy, then that's where they, you get that's been maybe more an advantage for steroid sparing. And the other thing I thought from this one is that the... You know, the, we've, I've said this a few times on some of these papers we've reviewed, is that like it, it emphasizes again that we think about lupus as B cells or to antibodies, and that's what we target with therapies. But this just emphasizes that there are mechanisms that are not adaptive immunity that aren't about autoantibody exactly. production that are driving the disease. And that's an important thing to think about in, in the clinic where we feel like we've tried all the drugs that are available to us, is that there may be mechanisms that we haven't tried to target yet. Exactly. And now we, we have a recently new uh, drug approved for uh, for lupus, which is anifrolumab, which is the first molecule targeting um, uh, the innate immune system by blocking the receptor yeah. for interferon alpha. So it would be key to see if, if these can be used more widely in the future. So this is really preliminary data. It's a small piece of evidence, but it links to a sort of a bigger theme. And I think there is a clinical trial of, of agents that, that target toll receptors in, in progress. So we expect to see more about this story in future.
Exactly. And just just a last comment, but they 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 used a single lupus mouse model. And generally speaking, mouse models do not represent human disease 100%. We should emphasize that. And uh, for example, the mouse model these authors used were the MRL um, uh, uh, mouse model, which is the, um, the experimental model of the autoimmune for proliferative syndrome. So there is an issue in the, uh, 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 there is depletion of the fast fast linked pathway. So actually there is lymphoproliferation and there's a very much BNT cell driven disease by the adaptive immune system. Yes. So if, yes. if uh, this concept of dual inhibition of TLR7 and 8 with glucocorticoids can be applied to other mouse models, it's an interesting question. And if this is even applicable to humans. Yeah, so none of these models represent all of the abnormality you get in human lupus today. Exactly, yeah. Okay, let's go on to the next one. Um, so I reviewed this one, which is about um, the physician's global assessment. Um, so this was a paper by Johanna Muck and her colleagues, and she's doing quite a lot of work on things like, um, like for example, she's what she's doing work on on the outcome measures that we're collecting in lupus, and on also these trials that tr that try to treat to target. So this is a paper. This study she's done and her colleagues have done here is uh, along this theme, which is when we do lupus trials, we measure disease activity in different ways. And we usually use a composite. So we might include the SLEDI, we might include the BILAG as well. And we all often include the physician's global assessment. The physician's global assessment is uh, just simply a VAS, a line from zero to three, and you make a mark on it and how severe you feel the patient is. Um, and it's, it, 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 we, even though that might seem rather subjective and rather simplistic, it's felt to have an important role. So the reason it's important comes, so for example, the SRI4 includes this measure. And the reason it's important is because the slate eye, as used as the primary component of the SRI4, it has some significant limitations. It's not very good for defining remission and flares. For example, if you had, if your, if your swollen joint count was three, you would have four points on the sleeve, on the sleeve dial. If over the course of a trial, your swollen joint count went up to 20, the sleeve dial score wouldn't change. And in fact, if your other features were getting better, your sleeve dial score could even be improving. So we can't use the sleeve dial alone to tell us about this. Another thing would be if you have something like a severe hemolysis, well, this isn't an item on the sleeve dial. So you could be in remission on the SLEDI, but with life-threatening disease. So this is why we always include the physicians global, to give the physician the opportunity to say, but this person is ill or this person is well in my overall judgment. But it, it, it is a, it's a problematic thing to do to just give physicians a line. So it is by definition subjective. It's subjective on purpose. And that means that what I give a patient on the PGA may be different from what you give and it may be different from what a third person gives. And we may all have valid things that we're thinking about, but we just may have different opinions. And because it's subjective, you know, it's prone to some biases. Like um, if I know that I'm about to start a biologic, I may be inclined to give a higher PGA 
Whereas if I've given my biologic and I want to continue it, I may be inclined to get a slightly lower score. You know, you, you may be influenced by these things, not just by disease activity. And if you look at your score from last time, it may influence what your score did. Since all these issues with the PGA, but then there is felt to be a need for the PGA and there's a need to formalize. So the idea here was to, uh, one thing we don't know about the PGA is what is remission on a PGA? So what score, if, if you if you give a score of um, four out of 10, if, it's, if you do a 10 centimeter one, or one out of three, is that okay? Is that remission? Is it not? Is it, you know, we don't know. So what they tried to do here was to try to, um, to define the threshold for remission. Um, now, when you're trying to do thresholds for remission, on any scale, again, there are lots of things to think about. You know, this measurement science, it gets more and more complicated the more you think about it. So usually you try to compare your measure to some external standard of what remission is to say, what level on this measure is the correct one to aim for? But what should that standard be? One option is to choose some other definition of remission. So we've got a SLEDI definition of remission. You could take that. What's the SLEDI definition of remission and what PGA sort of corresponds to that? You could do that, but then you're slightly competitive. SLEDI is scored by the physician and PGA is scored by the physician. It's a bit like agreeing with itself. Is it really external? You could, when we said, and as I said, the SLEDI has defects, you could ask the physician simply, is this person in remission or not, in your opinion? You could just do that, forget any score, just what's your overall gestalt. Sometimes you can use a gold standard. I did this for lupus arthritis when we invented a tool because we said, well, we'll scan the joints and if the ultrasound's normal, then it's remission. And if the ultrasound's not abnormal. So you, sometimes you can have a gold standard as objectives to tell you what's remission, but you usually don't, usually don't have that option. Or you could ask the patients. So you could say, you could do a thing called the patient acceptable symptom state, where you say to people, is this level of symptoms acceptable to you? And use that as your definition of remission. But that has problems too, because patients will include other, their other conditions, their damage, their drug toxicity, and their overall feeling, not just disease. They've all got problems. What they did here was they tested the PGA against two things. One was um, Doris, remission, definition of remission. One was Doris remission with the PGA part taken out, modified Doris, obviously that, obvious reason for that. And the third one was just asking physicians, is this person in remission? Yes or no? And they took those measures and they essentially did ROC curves, you know, where you try and see if, if you take the, 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 the relationship between your VAS score and the and the remission state, yes or no, whether you've got a kind of clear inflection point where you could say this is the point on the ROC curve that defines remission. And essentially, the, the overall conclusion was, as it says on the slide there, that the, the, level of, the level of PGA that looks like remission is 2 out of 10, which is equivalent to 0.6 out of 3 if you're doing a 0 to 3 version. That corresponds to remission. So we have some kind of an answer, but I think we have to bear in mind that it's got some caveats to it, some, some defects. But Ed, shall I ask you a simple question? If, yeah. if the physician global assessment is such a subjective tool, is there any value of us using it on our daily practice in the clinic? I agree. And it's and I think 
and that's a good question for all these tools. People say all the time, it's like, when I see a lupus patient, do I have to write down this lead eye or not? And most, uh, most people don't, and they don't for the reasons I said, they know it's got defects. And it's the same with the PGA, isn't it? You could use it. You could say, you know, how do I feel this person is today? Eight out of 10. Does that mean that when I see them in six months time, I'll look back and say, well, I'm giving them four out of 10 today. Therefore, they've improved. Uh, I'm not sure because it has subjective components. Um, and I think to me, you know, I think these these disease activity tools are useful. I personally, I say this all the time and I'm biased, but I personally think that the BiLag is actually better because it's more systematic and it covers all the features and there are clear rules, okay? So people say the sleet eye is easy and the Physicians Global is easy, but when you think of all the potential problems with them, they actually seem to me rather harder because I have no idea what the result means. Whereas the BiLag, if you follow the rules correctly, Actually, it's easy to interpret because you know why you scored it. If I give you a bi this biolag score, I know why I gave it to you. And I know that you would give the same score as I would give. Oh, and so. actually, that's, that's a good one. And uh, because now I know you published with our colleague, Lucy Carter, the easy biolag score. Yeah. And uh, actually, it's a very easy way to assess the activity within a minute. Yeah, yeah. So, I have started using it and I recorded in my clinic letters. So I think it's 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 excellent and it's yeah. So um so um and I think I mean I think really for the clinic, I suppose, you know, without just sitting here trying to promote bilag, but just a more general comment is the really thing the important thing in the clinic is why you think what you think to me. When I see a patient, a colleague has assessed, if they say this is severe or this is moderate or this is mild, what I want to see is what's their thought process behind that. And that's more important than a score, actually, is, you know, I just get an understanding to their thinking. And just a, a final question, if I may. So, you know, we have those sometimes like this subjective assessment, like the physician global assessment and case is globally uh, used and it has its flaws. So, if clinical trials fail to meet the primary endpoint as defined by uh, reduction in disease activity by sled dye, can we still believe? Exactly. Very good point. Yeah, exactly. Is that I think once that's another reason to think about to understand these outcome measures and what is wrong with them helps you to understand why sometimes what the, just because a trial did or didn't meet its primary endpoint doesn't necessarily mean a drug doesn't work. We know that for a fact, because if you take licensed biologics, you can have two phase three trials having exactly the same design. And one is positive and one is negative. They can't both be right. So we know that RCTs don't always tell the truth. And that's why it's important when you look at a trial to think about, you know, beyond primary endpoint met or not is to think look at all of the data in the trial all of the numeric trends all of the different secondary endpoints exploratory endpoints all of these things to make a judgment about whether a drug is good or not and that can be important if you're a pharma company it's when you're in phase two you've missed your primary endpoint but you still think the drug's worth pursuing for a physician it might be that there are some drugs that we're already using in the clinic maybe they're not licensed we're already using them and a negative trial doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what you should do in the clinic um you know you have to think about what's right for your patient and why the trial is positive or negative 
So the next paper actually is following a fairly similar theme, isn't it, about sort of outcome measures and remission definitions. Yes, correct. So um, uh, it's actually this is um, a study published by Thibaut et al. titled Health-Related Quality of Life, Remission and Low Lupus Disease Activity State in Patients with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus. And um, actually, the aim of this study was basically to measure cross-sectional differences in generic and specific health-related quality of life scores between patients with systemic lupus erythematosus, fulfilling or not the Doris and LLL DAS definition of remission as assessed at a different time point during a prospective follow-up period. And I think it was two years. And they um, the, um, the paper included a, a quite large number of patients with SLE, 336. Just before I go to um, to the details of, of the work, I, I would like to clarify for our, for our audience, what are the differences between Doris and LLDAS? So basically Doris um, is, defines remission on treatment, which allows the patients to be treated with maintenance antimalarials, stable dose of glucocorticoids at a low dose, five or less than five milligrams of prednisolone, maintenance immunosuppressants and or stable biologics, such as rituximab or belimumab. Interesting to say that serological activity as defined by a high level of antihistamine antibody or low C3 and or C4 complement levels were, were not included in those definitions as there was no consensus regarding its incorporation into uh, the definition of remission. On the other hand, LLDAS. But, uh, but Doris, you also have to have SLEDI zero and okay. PGA less than 0.5. And it's just like we were saying before that they've got the reason they have the two is because you don't want a SLEDI of zero but also to have life-threatening hemolysis. Yes. That's why you've got both those two in as well, yeah. That, that, that's, that's a very good point. Well, the LLLDAS definition was generated by a panel of lupus experts from the Asia-Pacific region. and is less restrictive compared to, to the Doris uh, assessment uh, in a sense that uh, they define the remission according um to corticosteroid therapy up to 7.5 milligram per day and the physician global assessment up to one, while the SLEDI should be up to four points. So, um, um, so what, what they showed actually in this paper is they used different questionnaires validated for lupus, such as the lupus pro, the lupus QOL, SLEQOL, and the SF36 questionnaire. And uh, actually they tried to associate if a reduction in the disease activity in patients with systemic lupus erythematosus also had an impact um, on the quality of life of the patients. And I think yeah. the-, the... RS and LLDAS, as we've said, everything about that is physician determined. Yeah. Sleet eye, PGA, steroid dose, therapies. It's all things the doctor chose. Uh, and actually, the key result of of of, of the paper is, is is quite simple. If uh, if you improve the disease activity, the patient will have a better quality uh, of life. Mm. Um, however, I think there are a few limitations here with with uh, with the study and how we need to interpret that 
And uh, as I mean, you're quite you're quite an experienced lupus physician, Ed. So would you like to comment on that? Well, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so I, I mean, I agree that you know it, it's the, uh, the the message is important. It, it just shows you that it's worth getting people into the lowest disease activity. Lowest disease activity or remission you'll, will be associated with people feeling better um, themselves. So that's good. But what I doubt, so what I, I think is, first thing is, in this, this is an observational study, and people were, you know, they, they people were naturally found to be in low disease activity or not. Why? Why were some in low disease activity and some not in low disease activity? It could be that the ones not in low disease activity hadn't been given as many treatments, and that actually, if you gave them, for example, more biologics, they would have achieved the low disease activity too and had an improvement in quality of life. But it might not be. The reason the one that some patients weren't in low disease activity, it might they had maybe they had the same treatment, they just had a more severe form of lupus, or they were in a subgroup of people. You know, we know some of the people who get worse lupus, uh, certain ancestral or ethnic groups, or people with younger age of onset of lupus, and, or people who have a different organ involved from the start, it's hard to treat. And so that might be why they're not in low disease activity. And then you don't really know whether giving them more therapy is necessarily going to improve the risk. They might have already had it. Yeah. So well, what, can, can I take away from this that I should increase my therapy to make their quality of life better? Probably yes, in many cases, but I'm not sure that it's necessarily going to give everyone a good quality of life. Yeah, because I would like to mention the issue of comorbidities here and chronic damage. If you have a patient with quite refractory cutaneous lupus or someone with lupus nephritis that ended up to dialysis, they may have very low disease activity. Yeah. But the quality of life may be permanently impaired yeah exactly by, by the chronicity of the disease and and, it, and i think sometimes there's a you know like at the start of the disease when you're early in the disease most of the problem is disease activity and most of their impairment of quality of life is disease activity and that's why when you give steroids it seems to have such a magical effect and they will be so grateful to you for making them feel better but as the disease goes on for longer they will get toxicity from drugs so they may get osteoporosis and they may have vertebral fractures and they may have chronic back pain because of this uh they they may also develop depression whether it's due to the steroids or due to living with a chronic disease and then you've got all these problems that don't improve with with immunosuppressant therapies and obviously they will report poor quality of life because of those problems the patients when we ask them about quality of life they're not just meant to tell us about disease activity they're meant to tell us about their life um and so you 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 start to get problems that can't be solved by improving disease activity so i guess i think that i think i took two things from this one is yes i'm i mean i'm it, it adds to the evidence that improving disease activity is the right thing to do always because when you have lower disease activity you'll improve many outcomes and quality of life is probably among them but also i think we need to be cognizant that in many patients, especially with longer standing disease, if you want to improve their quality of life, you're going to have to treat other things, not just disease activity. Yeah, yeah. perhaps it's important to emphasize that we need we need to put the disease under control as early as we can to avoid yeah. permanent but, damage and yeah. To, yeah to improve the quality of life of our patients in the, in the long run.
yeah, if you take the phase where everything's disease activity, you've got much more ability to improve the situation, whereas in a later phase where it's not all due to disease activity. Okay, great. So that's all the time, all we've got time for today. So um, thanks for joining me, Anthony. It's great to have your insights. Yeah, thank you very much, Ed, for the invitation. I think um, our uh, audience has enjoyed the conversation. So thanks everyone for listening. You can find, as always, the full slide decks for the Deshmuk, Mukha and Tebow papers that we've discussed um, on the Lupus Forum. And you can get single slide summaries of some of the other papers that came out. Um, that's all at lupus-forum.com. As always, Lupus Forum is free to access. All of our content is free to download. You can download the PowerPoint slides and use them in your own teaching or in, or in your journal clubs. So if you register, then you'll get email updates whenever we have new content available. And you can follow us at Lupus Forum or One Word on Twitter and on LinkedIn. So thanks again and see you next time. Thank you very much.